Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for observing your table. We thank you for the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross in forgiving us of our sins and providing the way, rather, for our sins to be forgiven and for giving up his body, dying as our substitute, bearing our sins in his body. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ on the cross and providing a way for all men to be saved who believe in him. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to partake in this sacrament because, Lord, there are churches around the world that are not able uh, to do that. So, Father, refresh us through this communion table. And, Father, now my attention turns to prayer. Lord, you are the strength and hope of your people. And, Lord, we approach you through Jesus Christ, your Son, expressing thanksgiving. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that we have in the midst of this terrible and sinful world in which we live. Lord, as we pray early, we, we trust you in regard to our sins that you have cast them behind our backs. We trust in you, Lord, that many evils surround us. And, Lord, we're tempted on every end to sin against you. But, Father, we thank you that you have set our feet upon a rock, the rock of Christ, that stable rock, even when sins come against us, even when the temptations to sin assault us. Lord, we trust in you in our distresses when we're troubled with earthly things as we often are. Lord, you are still faithful. You don't fail us. Though our faith trembles, though we get weary in this walk as believers, Father, you do not fail us. Though we believe not at times, though we have little faith, you still abide faithful. Lord, you have helped us. You have been our strength. Your word tells us many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And Lord, when we take a look at our lives, we can see that although we've been afflicted through various trials, Lord, you have delivered us and Lord, because you have delivered us in the past, you are God. You do not change. You are immutable. It is impossible for you to not be God. So Lord, if you delivered us from past afflictions, Lord, you would deliver us from future afflictions, from present afflictions. There are many in here right now in our church who I'm sure are afflicted by various trials by various uh, temptations, by various tribulations. We're possibly afflicted by uh, bad health. 
But Lord, in all of our afflictions, you deliver us. In all of our afflictions, you bear with us. And Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for being the faithful God. That Lord, though we fall and though we slip, you keep our feet like hinds feet. You keep us from utterly falling away. And Lord, we thank you for that blessed faithfulness that in the midst of adversity, springtime does come. In the midst of darkness, Lord, you are yet there. And Lord, we also praise you and thank you for keeping alive a testimony for your truth in this land in our great nation. Lord, there have been dark and evil days. And Lord, there are those who profess to be your servants who have turned to be traitors of the gospel. And Lord, yet in the midst of even those false Christians and apostates, Lord, you still hear the cries of the faithful. You still hear the cries of your people. And Lord, that candle is not put out. You have not removed the lampstand from your church. Even until this day, Lord, you reign in the midst of your people and the saints who honor your name. And so, Lord, we pray for your church here in this nation. We pray, Lord, for your church in other nations where the gospel is under severe attack where the church, the church of Christ, is under great persecution. Lord, you still reign in the midst of your people. May we as a church continue to look to you. May we as a church continue to proclaim your truth, to not be afraid of your truth, to not shy away from your truth. Lord, let that be said of the living church, that all of us here, that we not stray from your truth, that we not compromise your truth and I pray for churches around the world churches across this nation and around the world that they do not compromise your truth and Lord we pray that you strengthen us for a future confidence in you that Lord when our confidence seems to fail by reason of present affliction Lord, we ask you to strengthen the thing that remains. Strengthen the thing that seems to be ready to die. Lord, strengthen our faith. Gird us up. And Lord, let our faith no longer waver. But Lord, those who are weary, those whose faith seems to be waning, Lord, let their faith no longer waver. But may they become strong in the Lord, in the full assurance of faith because Lord you know the burden of every heart before you you know the secret cries and the, the secret tears you see them all Lord so Father I pray that you strengthen us in the faith strengthen us by your spirit encourage us by your precious Holy Ghost because, Lord, we know that we can trust you, and we do. 
Our faith has gathered strength by each passing year. As we pass through each birthday, Lord, we trust, we rely on you more because you are our strength. Lord, though the earth be moved and the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, Lord, we will stand firm on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Lord, we will not fear because you abide forever and your covenant cannot fail. Lord, I pray this morning also for our churches that we affiliate with other like-minded brethren that you strengthen all of us as men to continue to be faithful shepherds to not be given over to false ideologies and, and, and false anti-biblical worldviews that are proliferating in the church Lord give us strength give us the backbones to stand boldly with both feet planted and our hands on your word and proclaim the true gospel of Jesus Christ to proclaim the true word of God the gospel of God without fear and Father I pray that as we preach this morning that no one in here who is an unbeliever goes away as an unbeliever that Lord if anyone in here has been indifferent to what they've heard in the preaching that they may see clearly this morning that salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, anyone in here who is trusting in the things of this world or their talents or their friends, but, Lord, they trust in you for their salvation, that they come to believe in the everlasting, ever-living God, that they come by Christ unto you, God the Father. Lord, may you save this morning as the word is proclaimed. Lord, may you use me to preach powerfully your word, to rightly divide the word of truth as we look at this chapter in Esther. May the Lord Jesus be proclaimed as we look at the sin of pride and the virtue of humility. Lord, as this word is preached, may we examine our own hearts to see if there's any pride that resides in us and seek to destroy that grave sin with the Spirit's help. Father, speak from heaven this morning to us. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to receive and give us a mind to comprehend your precious truth this morning, the word of God. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. We praise the Lord. Privilege of prayer. Let us turn to Esther, the fifth chapter this morning
we're going to look at pride and humility in contrast, the Godward and selfward life in contrast. We're going to see the sin of pride through Haman, and we're going to see the virtue of humility through Esther in this passage. I pray that you all had a chance to read this passage as I, I've always been saying. We know which book we're in. We know which chapter we're in. So we always pray that uh, it's always a good practice to read ahead and to pray ahead. And this chapter, if you did read it like I did, it reads like a soap opera almost. It's, it's a lot of drama. It's a lot of irony involved in this this passage it reads just like something that you would watch on a weekday sitting at home as an old lady as my grandma used to say watching the soaps anybody ever watched the soaps before when I was growing up at home my grandma she'd sit and watch her favorite one was all my children and uh, the, yeah the uh, YNR Young and the Restless that's for the younger, younger, older people. Uh, she used to watch all my children in General Hospital, you know, as the world turns, you know, all those soap operas, uh, the days of our lives, uh, like sands through the hourglass, these are the days of our lives, you know. So this, th this chapter here reads almost like a soap opera, but the difference is this is God's story. This is God's story. So I'm going to read here beginning at the first verse and this was after the fast that we read that Esther had called for in chapter 4 to give a context she said that her maids would fast likewise and then that she would go to the king and if I perish I perish we talked about this last week in uh, verse 16 so now we are on the third day of the fast as the passage begins it said it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house. While the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was, excuse me, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king that the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom. It shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. I have found favor if I have found favor rather in the sight of the king 
And if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. <laughs> but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and, and sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman told them of the great richness, riches rather, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and he had advanced him above all the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made, fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Talk about things going sideways real fast for him, right? Okay. Two things I want to look at as we open up here. First, the sin of pride versus the virtue of humility. What is pride? Pride, first of all, simply put, is the greatest of all the worst sins. Pride is the spiritual root of most sins. Pride is such a great sin that if we say that we don't have pride, we're being prideful. When we say that we don't sin, as we read in our assurance of forgiveness this morning, we're saying that we have the sin of pride. Pride is such an easy trap to fall into. Do you know that there are more books written on pride than on humility? And the thing is, those books written on pride may not even have the word pride in them. But a lot of our books now in bookstores are filled with calls to self-worship, to self-adulation, you know, adoring yourself, worshiping yourself, esteeming yourself. Pride is an easy sin to commit. It is an easy sin to fall into. Pride is taking glory away from God. When we commit the sin of pride, that is what we're doing. We're taking glory 
away from the only person to whom praise belongs to, and that is God. The great wisdom writer says here in Proverbs 16 and 5, listen to this right here. It says, every one proud in his heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. Pride is a very great sin. And the thing about pride is, pride is a sin that originates in the heart, as the, as the proverb said. It is not something that you see. It is manifested outwardly, but it begins in the heart. It's one of those what we call sins of the flesh. It, it, it's a sin that originates in our fleshly nature, in our, in our hearts. And then it manifests itself outwardly. But it begins in our hearts. It is the spiritual begin of most sins. And on the contrast, you have humility. No one wants to be humble. In our sinful nature, we don't want to be humble. I'm sure most of us have been to funerals before. And how many times, how many funerals have you been to where you've heard someone get up and speak about the deceased and say that they were humble? That he was always a humble man or she was always a humble woman. How many times do you hear a person being spoken of as being humble? How many humble people do you know in your life? Whether it's family members, friends, a person who is humble is very striking. They, they really stick out. They don't want to bring attention to themselves, and they genuinely don't. They don't want any attention on themselves at all. No, they don't have, there's a such thing as false humility. When you want all the attention, but you act like you don't want it, you'll say, oh, please, no, no, don't, don't, please don't. That's false humility because they know that they want the attention. Humility is so hard to attain that even when people get up and receive awards or, or you know, they're receiving, they're presenting something. One, you know, some people get up and say, I am so humbled to be here today. That's not humility, that's pride because a person does not recognize their own humility if you recognize your own humility you're actually proud of your humility so there again you're uncovering the sin of pride humility is something that others see in you it's not something that you can esteem yourself because again you're not being humble when you're esteeming your own humility if you go to any bookstore even a Christian bookstore which they don't exist anymore. But when they did, you didn't see a large section of books on humility. If so, they probably had dust on them. 
because nobody wanted to bother him because no one wants to read about being humble because we don't like humility in our default sinful nature. I have this book right here called Humility by C.J. Mahaney. If anyone wants to read it, it'll probably sit out on that table and uh, collect dust. But I bought this book about 10 years ago. It's a very good book. And um, he says this about humility uh, in this book. First, he wants to define humility. And he quoted John Calvin, the great reformer. Calvin said, it is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. So what Calvin was saying was that we won't know what it means to be humble until we contemplate God and see how great God is. And how little we are. How big God is. How little we are. How holy God is. And how unholy we are. How good God is. And how sinful and evil we are. How great God is. And how great we're not. How righteous God is. And how unrighteous we are. How just God is. And how just we are. Paul himself said that Christ died the just for the unjust. How loving God is. And how much our hearts default toward hatred and envy of others. So when we look at God, when we gaze at God, when we see his true greatness, we can't do anything but look at ourselves and say, Lord, I'm not so great after all. That's when we know that we're humble. When we truly know in our hearts that we're not as good as we think we are. We're not all that and a slice of bread. Or a slice of pizza. C.J. Mahaney says, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. I think that's a good working definition. He says that's why the twin reality that all genuine humility is rooted in. It is rooted in God's holiness and our sinfulness. Without an honest awareness of those realities, all self-evaluation will be skewed and will fail to understand or practice true Humility. If we don't keep in mind God's holiness and our sinfulness, we will miss the point of true humility. He asked the question, let us ask ourselves, when it comes to the values that we live by, what others will say about us one day, will they testify that humility characterized our lives? Is that something that people will say of us? That we're humble people. That is not something that people pursue. Because a lot of people think humility means being run over and being stepped on. But that's not what it means. In this passage here we're going to see here in a second. 
Haman is the embodiment of pride. And as we read the passage, he was so proud because, you know, he went back to his family bragging and saying that the queen, that he was the only one that the queen invited to this feast. He was so full of pride. He says, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to his banquet that she prepared. He was so full of pride. He was feeling himself. But then we have Esther, who embodies the humility of Christ as she goes before the king. She dresses herself up and goes before him and requests entrance into his presence. So we're going to see that great contrast in how it plays out. So quickly, our questions here, what's the author's purpose? That God rules in the hearts of all rulers including the hearts of evil rulers. And he used them for his providential and redemptive purposes. We're going to see how God rules in the heart of Ahasuerus. What does God want to accomplish? That despite his apparent hidden nature, he is working his purpose out. We're going to just see one more part of this purpose, this narrative being carried out. And that is the queen accepting I'm sorry, the king accepting Esther's invitation to the banquet. We see as a summary again that God is actively involved in the life of Esther, in the life of Haman, Mordecai, and the king, all four of those characters that we see in this passage. And what are some values that we gain from this chapter for us today? Again, the providence of God, as I said, is the overarching theme in this book that God governs the life of Esther and Ahasuerus as she goes before him and the king accepts her God is working in both of their hearts to accomplish this number two another value we see is the blessing of humility that Esther going before the king humbly is a picture of believers going before the throne of God with humility that's what we see taking place. God says in Isaiah 66 and 2 that he will look upon him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, one who is humble. And then the third value we see is the curse of pride. Haman's anger toward Mordecai coupled with him recounting the splendor of his own glory shows a man deeply insincere, rather insecure, and he is consumed with pride, which will ultimately lead to his downfall. And this reminds me of one of the uh, greatest verses in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 16 and 18, where the writer says, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In verse 19 of Proverbs 16 says, Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. And we're going to see the curse of pride in Haman's life. So let's go ahead and do our expository observations of the text, beginning with the God, Godward life in verses 1 through 8. 
We see it says here on the third day of the feast, Esther humbly prepares to go before the king. She does this with great humility. So the first thing we see is that she dons her royal apparel. And she went to the king's palace and stood in the court as he is seated on his throne. Now, this was a very dangerous move, again, because remember, the chapter before, she was cautioned not to go because if she went and the king didn't accept her, then there would be certain death. But this standing in the court, it was a very dangerous move by her because, again, those who went before the king must first bow down to him. So it says here she finds favor in the king's sight. He saw her standing in the court and she found favor in his sight. And so the king held out his golden scepter. The scepter was kind of like a rod. And she touches the top of it. And so she avoided the death penalty. Her touching the top of it was a sign of acceptance. That she accepted his invitation to come into his presence. So we see in verse 3 here, he asked her his wish. What do you wish, Queen Esther? Now, obviously, he knew something was on her mind because of how she approached him. She put on all her royal garments and everything. Excuse me. So he didn't ask her, hey, what are you doing here? He asked, what do you wish? So he could probably see a perplexing look on her face. Now, the phrase up to half the kingdom is it's, a, it's an idiomatic expression. In other words, it's not to be literally taken seriously. He didn't mean that he would give her half his kingdom. It's, it's basically an exaggeration to say, whatever you ask for, I'll give you. But he doesn't mean literally up to half his kingdom. And so in verse 4, Esther answered, if it pleases the king. She is ambiguous in her response. In other words, she can't seem to make up her mind what she wants to ask. She's not, she's not very clear. She's rather ambiguous. She's, she says here, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. But I think that this is a way of setting up Haman for his downfall. She first requests the king and Haman attend a banquet that day. And then at the banquet, <laughs> she requests they attend one the next day. So this is kind of like a prelude. This is step one. Come to this banquet. And then at this banquet, I will invite you what? To the next banquet. So, 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 so she's very ambiguous, but she's very masterful in what she's doing. She is perhaps setting um, Haman up. But through this whole ordeal... Esther demonstrates humility, which is a godly characteristic. We see her being humble. And then we get to the second part of this passage where we see the opposite. We see Haman, the selfward life in verses 9 through 14. So this narrative shifts from Esther's banquet to Haman's pride and his anger towards Mordecai. Now, this, this is kind of like the funny part to me. 
You know, after hearing that he was invited to the queen's banquet along with the king, Haman is glad of heart. He's feeling himself. He's probably, you know, dip, zippity doodah, zippity a, my oh my oh, what a wonderful day. And then how that song goes, plenty of sunshine headed my way. He's all happy because he was invited to the banquet. He was feeling himself. He was popping his collar. But his countenance changed when he saw Mordecai. Mordecai continued not to reverence him to the point that Haman became indignant. He says he was filled with indignation. Indignation is basically wrath. He felt so insulted. He was happy until he saw Mordecai. Again, we have to remind ourselves of that scripture, Proverbs 16 and 18 again, that pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And that's what we see here taking place. So, nevertheless, Haman, he kept himself composed. <laughs> he didn't lose his cool at that moment. But instead, he went home to consult with his family members. So, you know, he called all his, his peoples over to consult with his family members and his friends. Sometimes those are the worst people to talk to, especially if they're ungodly. Ungodly counsel is not good uh, to seek when you're in a bad mood or when you're not feeling good, when you're indignant. And so he was angry and he went to his friends. He began to boast in all that he had in his position before the king. In other words, the, the solution to sin is not more sin. <laughs> but that's what he did. He, he, was already, he already had to sin a big indignation and pride because he wasn't worshipped by Mordecai. And then around his family and friends, guess what? He sins again by bragging on all that he has. So the, the solution to one sin was to commit another sin. But that is not the way out of sin. But that's what pride does. That's where pride leads you. Pride leads you to more pride. It increases. It waxes more and more. He was prideful because he wasn't being worshipped and bowed down to by Mordecai. And then he went to his family and friends. And he was being prideful again even more by bragging about everything that he had. That is a case study in pride. That a person who is proud continues in their pride. They just can't help themselves. Y'all know people who are always bragging on themselves? Always saying, look at me. They may not say it, but their actions say it. <laughs> you know, I, I always uh, make this joke about uh, people on Facebook when they say happy birthday to me. 
And then all of a sudden they got 500 replies from people who, who don't even know them saying, happy birthday. That's the attention they wanted when they said what? Happy birthday to me. That's pride. Because you want everyone you want, you want to read all those comments, all these people saying happy birthday to you. Pride leads to what? More pride. Everyone wants to be celebrated. Everyone wants to be adored. Everyone wants to be worshipped. And guess what? They can never get enough of it. Because that's what pride does. It fosters more pride. It fosters more arrogance. It fosters more self-worship. And that's what we see here in Haman. This is the selfward life. But even in the midst of all this pride, he had even more pride. Why? Because foremost on his mind was what? Vengeance against Mordecai. So first he had hatred of Mordecai, which is pride. Then he was proud of all that he had in the position he had before the king. And then he had the sin of pride again by wishing vengeance against Mordecai. His wife suggested building a tall pole in which to hang Mordecai. Remember, uh, they, they didn't hang, they impaled people. So his wife made the suggestion. And this pole was suggested to be about 75 feet high, which was an exaggeration because some of the tallest buildings during that time weren't even 75 feet high. But that was just an exaggeration to impel him to where everybody can see it, basically. That's what they, that's what she meant by that. So that pleased Haman. It says here in the passage that the gallows be made 50 cubits high and in the morning suggested the king that Mordecai be hanged on it then go merrily with the king to the banquet and this thing or the thing pleased Haman there's more arrogance and pride involved and how ironic that Haman would be the one that would be hanged on the gallows that he made for someone else Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So through this whole ordeal, Haman demonstrated pride, arrogance, a murderous heart, and envy. How did he envy him? Because he was feeling good after learning that he was invited. But as soon as he saw Mordecai, his countenance changed. Do you know that that's the sin of envy? That you let the very presence of someone change your mood? When someone's name is brought up and all of a sudden your whole countenance changes, that is envy. Envy is at the heart of the sin of murder. You dislike someone so much that the mention of their name. And I know people like that. Someone has wronged you in your past. And yes, it has happened. It's real. It is actual. 
But you have so much envy in that person's in your heart, rather, that the very mention of that person's name changes your mood or their very presence. You just seen them somewhere in public and your whole countenance changes. That is the sin of envy, which pride is at the heart of. Haman was feeling good until what? He saw Mordecai. And then when he saw Mordecai, he thought of ways to get rid of him. And his wife obviously knew how he felt because he probably told them everything about it. And that's why she made the suggestion to do what? Hang some gallows. <laughs> so obviously he told his wife about his hatred towards this Jew. And so his wife said, let a gallows be made and let it be high that everybody can see it. So his hatred passed on to his wife. His envy passed on to her. That is what pride does, friends. Pride comes before destruction. You end up being the one being destroyed. The person that you're harboring bitterness toward, they moved on with their life. They're not studying you. They're not. You got people who hold grudges, 50-year-old grudges, 60-year-old grudges, 40-year-old grudges, 20-year-old grudges. Those people that moved on with their life, some of them probably dead and pushing up daisies. And that name gets brought up and a person's mood changes. I remember what they did to me back in 1945 or 1985 or, you know, whatever the case may be. You still remember that. You're still holding on to it. That's pride. That's envy. That is a sin. And that's what we see in Haman. Murderers, it leads to murderous thoughts about these people. You, you wish harm on them. And our Lord told us in Matthew 5 to even harbor those type of thoughts against people is akin to murder. You've committed murder in your heart. First John tells us if anyone hates his brother, he is a murderer. Because envy leads to what? It leads to hatred. It's a seed. Envy is a seed. That's what we see. That's why Haman had these murderous thoughts toward Mordecai because he harbored his pride. He nurtured it. And out of that pride grew envy. Out of that pride grew a murderous heart. Out of that pride grew arrogance. That's what we see. We see the self with life, how, how selfish pride is and how destructive it can be to a person. We have a case study here with Haman. We saw earlier when Mordecai didn't bow down to him and he got angry and went to the king and had an edict to be issued to kill all the Jews, to not kill them, annihilate them, wipe them out the face of the uh, empire, wipe them out the face of the known earth of the known war right at that time. So we see where pride leads. Do we see that in this passage? Do we see that with Haman? Do we 
see that in our own hearts? If we as believers struggle with that, we have to fight against that sin because if not, it is an all-consuming sin. It will consume us. It will consume us. Secret vengeance is pride. If you secretly wish harm against someone, that's pride. As I said in the beginning, pride is inescapable. It is so easy of a sin to commit. In the list of the sins that God hates, guess what the first one is? A proud heart. In the book of Proverbs. Six things the Lord hates, seven is an abomination. Number one, a proud heart is at the top of the list. Because God himself, being and knowing all things, knows the destructiveness of pride. And we have to be on the watch out for that sin when it creeps up. Lord, do away with the pride in my heart. Do away with the envy in my heart or the jealousy in my heart or the bitterness that I'm harboring. Father, do away with it. Because if not, it'll spread like cancer in your soul. Amen? Look at our three principles here. First of all, God is working his purposes out. God's plan of protecting, saving, and redeeming his people is continuing to come into shape. As we read through this narrative, as Esther goes before the king, because no matter of evil, the evil of Haman or the evil of the king can thwart God's plans. God is still working his purpose out. Although Haman wants those gallows to be, his wife wants those gallows to be made for Mordecai, this is not stopping God's plan. It is still working out. God does work with human behaviors and responses. Who gave Esther the courage to go before the king? God did. God gave Esther the courage to go before the king. And it was God who caused the king to have a change of heart and look favor upon her. Excuse me. This was an evil king. You didn't go before him. Just nobody's went before him. So God does work with human behavior and responses to him. So God being omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing. He worked in the heart of Esther to give her courage to go before the king, and he worked in the heart of the king to give her the golden scepter to come before his presence. Don't think that God can't work through the hearts of evil people because he can. Biblical history testifies to that. That God does work his purposes out, even by means of evil people. 
That's why when evil befalls us, when evil comes upon us or comes up against us, we must know that God can still work even through that evil. Which goes back to my first point, working his purposes out. Nothing, no amount of evil can thwart God's plans. None. No matter how powerful it is, it can't do it. And number three, God calls his people to faith in him. Esther's approach to the king required a tremendous amount of faith. Because remember she said, if I perish, I perish. And on the third day of their fast, she said, let's go. Her approach to the king required a tremendous amount of faith. Faith that was given to her by the providence of God in her life. And that's a picture of God calling us to faith in him because he's not a king like a Ahasuerus as we're going to see here in a little bit. God calls all his people to faith in him. That's what he does. Implications. We got three of them here. Number one. Esther came to a proud and imperious or domineering man. Anyone who's uh, fearful of, of anyone who is, is it is a fear to approach is a what they call imperious or domineering man. Like you don't know what to say to them. You don't you don't know which person you're going to get. But who do we come to? We come to the God of what? Love and grace. She was not called. We are. Matthew Henry says this. He says the spirit says come and the bride says come. She had a law against her. We have a promise. We have many promises in favor of us. Ask and it shall be given. Matthew 7. She had no friend to introduce her. Or intercede for her. While on the contrary. He that was then the king's favorite was her enemy. But we have an advocate with the father. In whom he is well pleased. Let us therefore. Come boldly to the throne of grace. That's Matthew Henry's commentary on. This passage. It is so good that we have someone to introduce us to God the Father and that is Jesus Christ as our advocate. Esther had to go before this king all alone by herself. She didn't have an advocate to go with her. None of, none of her mistresses, her maids could go with her into the king's presence. She had to go all by herself. But we as believers, guess what? We come before God in the name of Jesus Christ, our advocate. We come to God, a God of love and grace, in the name of Jesus Christ. And as he said also, we don't have to even fear what we ask. Matthew 7, Jesus says, Ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open to you. That is not a general promise for everybody. That's for believers. We can go to God anytime and ask. Seek and find. 
Ask, seek, and knock, rather, and you will find. She couldn't do this with Ahasuerus. And number two, self-admirers and self-flatterers are really self-deceivers. This is speaking of Haman. <laughs> Haman pleased himself with the thoughts that the queen had designed honor, had, had rather designed to honor him. But she actually designed this banquet to accuse him. But he thought that she was designing this banquet to honor him, to make it all about him. He made it about himself. He was a self-admirer, and he was a self-flatterer. He flattered himself by making this invitation something more than what it was. She designed this banquet to accuse him, to set him up, and he didn't even know it. Why? Because he was so blind by his self-admiration. If you think about this, I, I was looking at a, a, this was back in 2017. I can only imagine how much more worse it is now. But there was a Facebook study. Facebook did this study back in 2017. I had to revisit it. But Facebook did a study in uh, 2017 about selfies. You know, back, back in the middle part of, of this decade, or the early part, uh, you know, selfies were like, very, very, very popular. They're not as popular as they used to be, but people still take them because I do. I took one yesterday with a former student of mine in the mall. But this is what it said. It said, uh, and this was Facebook that did this study. The study said that people get fewer likes from each successive selfie that was taken. Why, you may ask? Because at the heart of it, people don't like selfish people or self-worshippers. That's what Facebook found out when they surveyed their own users. That people who posted a lot of selfies, they got fewer and fewer likes with each successive selfie post because after a while, people will say, I'm tired of seeing you. <laughs> That's basically what... That's basically what they're saying because they get fewer and fewer likes. I'm tired of you posting about yourself. I'm tired of you posting pictures about your baby. <laughs> but that's what happens. So what this Facebook said was people come up with more creative ways to get likes. This is back in 2017. This was five years ago. I don't know how much it is now because I don't spend as nearly as much time on Facebook as, as I um, Usually, I told my wife just yesterday, I just find myself just scrolling. That's all I do. I don't post a lot. And, and I get tired. Only at five minutes, I'm like, I'm done. Like, I'm through. Because I, uh, it's just the way it is. I, I just don't do it. I, I don't know if it's getting older or me maturing in Christ or what. But I, I, because it's just a mileage, you just scrolling thing and hidden like and maybe come in here and there. There's nothing inherently sinful about that. I'm not saying that. I'm not indicting anybody. 
But the point I'm making is, there's only so much of it that you can, you can take. But this study showed that at the heart of it, people don't like self-worshippers. But people still want to be worshipped, no matter what. People still look for their adoration. So when we're looking at self-admirers like uh, Haman and self-flatterers, they often have a higher estimation of themselves than other people do. Y'all know more people who think more of themselves than people think of them? They have a way higher estimation of themselves than other people do. They think too much of themselves. They think that they're God's gift to the world. And you're not. You're just a little peasant. That's the way self-admirers and self-flatterers are. And that's what we see in Haman. Matthew Henry said, What magnifying glasses do proud men look at their faces in? <laughs> they look at this, their faces through their own, <laughs> own magnifying glass. Obadiah 3 tells us that the pride of their heart deceives them. That's what happens with the proud. The pride of man's heart deceives him. God said this to the Edomites in Obadiah, the third chapter and the third verse. He says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Listen to this. This is God bringing judgment on uh, the Edomites. He says, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend it as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. That is what the Lord does to the proud. Those who are self-admirers and self-flatterers. They will have their day before God. Don't you know that even the most proud person will have to bow the knee to Christ? Because what does Paul tell us in, the, uh, in Philippians 2? At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Even the most selfish, proudful person that you know are going to have to humble themselves before the mighty Christ. They're going to be brought low. The scripture says that every mountain will be brought low and every valley will be exalted. All of those who are proud, all of those who are self-flatterers, all of those who are self-worshippers, they will be humbled down to the dust. Why? Because self-worship takes away from the worship of God. We're not to be worshipped, and we're not to worship ourselves. We are made, we were created to worship God. 
And when we worship ourselves and when we want to be worshipped, we're taking glory away from the worship of God. But praise God that we serve an altogether different king than the one that Esther knew. Approaching God is not like approaching the Hasmus. We don't have to have our knees trembling and our heart wondering whether we will survive the encounter. But our God invites us to come into his presence regularly, frequently. He invites us to come before him so that we may make known to him our petitions and our requests. It is so great as believers, we don't have to go to God wondering whether he'll hear our prayers or not. No, God hears the prayers of his people. He does. We don't have to wonder whether God hears us. He does. He hears your prayer, saint. He hears your prayers. We don't have to be subtle. He is a father to us. Jesus said, even if earthly fathers provide good things for their children, how much more will our heavenly father give the things that we need? He said that in Matthew 7. Our earthly fathers being evil give us good things. How much more will God give us good things? God who is, who is perfect. God who is altogether holy and righteous. How much more will he give to us? God is happy to oblige his children. He is happy to. God is happy to give his children what they ask for. It, God delights in doing that. Ahasuerus is not that kind of king. He doesn't delight in uh, granting requests. He doesn't want you coming in front of him. He may not accept you if you come. But our God is not like that. Amen. And we praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord. May applications as we close. Seek and cultivate humility. Recognize and kill pride. When we sense pride creeping up, we pursue humility. Ask God to cultivate in us a sense of true humility and not false humility. <laughs> if someone, and it's okay to receive compliments. It's okay to pe for people to praise you about things. That's not wrong. It's how we receive it. If we receive compliments as if, yeah, I did do that. Yes, I am worthy of that compliment. Yes, I am worthy that praise if we feel that way in our hearts then <laughs> yes we need to pray Lord kill this pride but we don't want to have false humility saying that we're thankful when we're actually proudful we want to have that humility we want to, to kill that pride because it can take us places that we don't want to go Regarding approaching God, what have we done with this privilege? What have we done with this glorious invitation? 
do we approach God boldly or do we approach God and say some of the worst things that Christians may say Lord I know you're probably tired of hearing from me do you know that's pride that's not that's not approaching God humbly when we say in our hearts I know God is tired of hearing from me that's pride because what does God do? He invites us to do what? To come. If he invites his believers to come, then why would he not want you to come? And when you say that, you're putting God on the same level as man. We don't like people coming to us all the time. <laughs> okay. Oh, boy, here she come again. I know what she about to do. She about to complain. You find and busy yourself doing something else. We do that to each other. Don't we? we got people like that. Like, oh, boy. Yeah, they call. Let me find. Let me find. Let me act like I'm on the phone or texting somebody or whatever. But when we approach God like that, we're putting God, we're saying that God is like us. But no, God is a loving God. He wants to hear from us. And we need to take advantage of that privilege. We don't need to treat God like he's like us because he's not. God is holy. He's righteous. He is separate from his creation he is a loving God he cares Peter tells us 1 Peter 5 casting our cares upon him because he what cares for us <clears throat> and his care for us is not conditional it's like Jesus gave the parable of the persistent widow who kept worrying The judge asking for justice. And the man finally said, let me give this woman what she wants because she is troubling me. And Jesus said, that is how we ought to pray. In fact, at the very beginning of that parable, he said that we should learn to pray and, and faint not. So... That's what he was telling us. To go to him. Are we taking advantage of that? Of that privilege? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Are we doing it? Are we approaching God that way? That's in Luke 18. Uh, the persistent widow. That we should always pray and not give up. Oh, how much Satan wants us to not pray. We don't see answers. Or we don't get the answers that we want. So what do we do instead? We just stop. We keep what? Asking. This widow Jesus talked about in that parable. The judge neither feared God nor cared about what people thought. So this judge was, was, was someone fearful that people didn't want to approach. But this widow didn't care. Jesus said the widow kept coming to him with the same plea, grant me justice against my adversary. She kept going. Widows were very poor in ancient cultures, in uh, antiquity. They were very 
very poor. They were some of the most, you're talking about the most vulnerable people. Widows were very vulnerable in uh, ancient Middle Eastern culture, ancient Greek culture. They were very, they, they were, you know, I don't like using this word. I'm not going to use it, but they were very, very vulnerable people. And so this widow coming to this judge, the judge didn't care what people thought. But guess what? She didn't care who he was. She still asked him to give her justice. That's the persistence that she had. He finally said, even though I don't fear God, or care what people think, this widow keeps bothering me. <laughs> and he saw that she got justice so that she won't come and attack him. <laughs> That's what that parable says. And this is Jesus said, listen to what Don Justice Judge said. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? No. That's a rhetorical question. So guess what? Are we taking advantage of this glorious invitation? It is a privilege for us as Christians to pray to God and God hear us. That is a privilege because he doesn't hear the prayers of those who are not his children. Now those who call to him and repent to be saved, yes, he answers that prayer. But he hears our prayers when we call. Do we take advantage of that privilege? Do we accept that invitation? And then lastly, trust God in the changing of hearts for his purposes and his glory. I was thinking about that this morning. Listen, we can't change anybody's heart. And all of us have tried. We've even tried to change our own hearts. Do better. Be better. Act better. Isn't that what we tell people? Oh, I wish they'd just do better. I wish they'd just act better. We can wish a thousand wishes. But until their hearts are changed, it ain't happening. People don't change until their hearts are changed. People's hearts are not changed until God changes their hearts. And I'm going to say this also. It's not that God is impotent and can't do it. It's not that God is not powerful enough to save because he is mighty to save. But you have to also understand there's two sides to that coin. You have God's sovereignty, but you also have human responsibility to respond to God. Sinful and rebellious man is not going to respond to God. They're going to continue to rebel. Think about you before you got saved. You were a rebel. God was calling out to you. Yeah, you may not have been out there in jail doing all this criminal justice stuff and all that you know being part of the criminal justice system or abusing your your, 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 your your wife or just doing all type all manner of sin abusing your body 
doing drugs. Uh, you may not have been doing all that, but you were still dead in your trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2. You were still a rebel. All of us were rebels before God saved us. You may have been the nicest kid in school, didn't get in any trouble, but stealing your sins, still having to give an account to your soul, before your soul, rather. And who changed your heart? God, when He saved you, He gave you that new nature. A person can't just do better. A person can't just be better. They need a new heart. And who changes hearts? God does. And he changes hearts for his purposes and for his glory, to bring glory to him. Because guess what? If we could change people's hearts, we can claim the glory, can't we? Yeah, I did it. I was the one who, I was the one who did it. I was the one who, who, who changed them. It's like the classic bad girl, good girl, who likes the bad boy and tries to change the bad boy into a good boy. Guess what? It doesn't work <laughs> because it's not her job to, to make a bad boy good. It is God who does that. It is God who changes hearts. So we trust the changing of hearts God it is God who changed Ahasuerus' heart to let Esther come into his presence it was God who did that it was God alone who did that it was God who changed Esther's heart to give her the courage to even go before him it is God who changed the hearts of prodigals sons and daughters, children, parents, grandparents, unsaved loved ones. It is God who changed their hearts and we pray to the Lord to do that and trust him to do it. Amen. Let us pray as we close. Amen. Father, we Thank you for your word. It is so encouraging. Lord, we pray that you transform our hearts just as you did the king in this passage. Lord, we need from you to grant us your spirit that we may have our hearts and lives increasingly reoriented uh, in a God-centered direction and away from pride. Lord, we need you to have our hearts and lives to be bent towards humility. Because, Lord, it is the work of the Spirit to lift up Christ in our hearts, to fill us with the desire to worship and to pray and to bring to fruition the slow work of sanctification in our lives. Lord, it is the work of your Spirit that gives us a heart of humility and Father, that is what I pray for all of us, that the Spirit works in our hearts to help us to foster humility and to kill pride. We can't kill this sin of pride with our own power, Lord. It takes the Spirit's help. So, Father, 
May our hearts gradually become more and more filled with gratitude for the privilege that we have in Christ. And let it be filled less with selfish and self-centered pride. Lord, if we have your favor, who cares what the world thinks of our humility? Grant it to us still, Lord. May we pursue the Godward way of humility and not the selfward way of pride. We know that you are faithful to do it, Lord. In Christ's name I pray, amen.